I'm very open about my um, investment, the investments I've made, and why I've, you know, as I say, the uh, criteria. But I'm also open about my failures and successes in a way that most, you know, most VCs will put on their, or some angels will put on their website their successes, but they won't necessarily put their failures. And if you look at my website, I've got, I've just updated last week because I had three failures in the last couple of weeks. I've now got nine exited with a return at least of a one X two with uh, 0-1x, which I still regard as positive because at least some money came back. And I've got, got 17 with no return at all for the shareholders. And I've also been a little bit cheeky because on my website I actually put the reason why, which is what you and I want to discuss over the next few minutes. Hi and welcome to Tech Talk. My name is Stefan and on this podcast I have conversations with founders, innovators and entrepreneurs in technology simply to learn and discover their journey of building a business in tech. I am 100% sure you will learn at least three new things from this conversation. It was simply packed with information and wisdom. I learned so many things that my mission to build the number one startup studio in the CE just got easier. I'm talking today to Peter Cowley. Peter is a Cambridge University technology graduate, founded and ran over a dozen businesses in technology and property over the last 40 years. He has built up a portfolio of 75 angel investments with 11 positive exits, including one that is 107x his investment, which eventually returned all the cash he has invested, and of course 17 failures. He is a board member of the Global Business Angel Network, President Emeritus of the European Business Angel Network, former chair of the Cambridge Business Angels, and was United Kingdom Angel of the Year 2014. He has mentored hundreds of entrepreneurs, seen thousands of business plans, and is on the board of eight startups. He is a fellow in entrepreneurship at the Cambridge Judge Business School and is on the investment committee of the UK Angel Co-Fund. He has also had 16 years experience as chair, treasurer and trustee of the boards of seven charities. With his son Alan, Peter is sharing his and others' experiences and anecdotes in order to educate angels and entrepreneurs via The Invested Investor, which publishes two books and over 75 podcasts. Peter is a public speaker on entrepreneurship and angel investing throughout the world. Enjoy my talk with Peter. Hello, Peter, and welcome to Tech Talk. Hello, thanks very much, Stefan, for having me on. Um, it was such a such a nice um, panel that we had, I think, a couple of weeks back at Wolf Summit, and um, I just felt the need that we should, you know, di- have a deeper dive into uh, all that, you know, investment comes, startups, and so on, because the panel didn't allow us so much to talk about it. Um, having four panelists on the panel, so I'm happy to have you here. Good, good, good. Yeah, I enjoyed that in in Rock's lab. Awesome. So this was really hard for me to choose, uh, you know, what to talk about with you since you have such a vast experience in investing and being active in some of your uh, portfolio companies. But let's see how it goes. And um, I'm going to start with um, basically one of the, the topic that interested me very much, and that was investment criteria. And all of your 76 investments that have passed, most of them through these investment criteria, um, have been structured in three chapters. One, the team and the customer acquisition cost and the customer lifetime value ratio. Two, the product. And three, the finances. And actually, the question would be, can you walk me through them and maybe just share how you got to them to these investment criteria and why are they so important to you? Good, of course I can, yes. So those are on my website, petercowley.org, and they've been up there probably for about six or seven years. And I 
and they've been adapted. I think I made an adaption in the last few months, so they've gradually been tweaked. But the the biggest um, time of learning was was the first few years, and and, and what I've learned here has actually gone into my book. So one of the reasons we might talk about the book later was to give people an idea of how they should work out their own investment criteria as early stage investor. Um, so. In the end, at the very early stage, there is only one criteria. Is the team going to be good enough? Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard people say on stage, what are the three most important things when choosing an early stage investment? And it's team, team and team. In the same way, when you're buying a house, it's location, location and location. So uh, it's, it is the team. And I made some pretty silly mistakes in the first few years about... Um, well, not necessarily mistakes, but they were part of the learning about and ended up choosing the wrong team. And I will use the word team over and over again rather than founder because it is rare for a, a single founder. It's not impossible. There are plenty out there. Of, you know, some very big companies like WeWork where there's only basically one founder. But the, it's rare to, for a single founder to receive external investment. A team, i.e. two or more founders, works, in my view, and many other people's view, very much better. So I built these these criteria up, and we can. I don't want to go through them in long detail because we've got a limited time, and they're also written down on my website. But basically, the team need to be you know, the, the three or four or five P's or whatever people use: passion, persistence, etc. Product. Um, so they must they must want to do it. They want to want to grow. The, it's very important if they're going to get external finance that they understand they'll be on a journey which had some has some pressure from the investors that it grows rapidly, much more rapidly potentially than they would have if they're just building a business themselves. And secondly, much more rapidly than perhaps they're even capable of growing. You know that uh, and, and and we come to later failures and why companies fail and and that's generally because the, ra- the rate of growth the investors wanted wasn't uh, wasn't achievable. Not necessarily the founder's fault, but it still wasn't achievable. I act a bit like the um, to carry on the sort of California VCs who only invest in California. That's not true any longer, of course. Uh, that I'd like to invest in people that are physically close to me within, as it says on my website, within 90 minutes by public transport. That has changed somewhat with COVID, but at the same time, so has my um, investment uh, activity, which again is on my website. Uh, very, very important to do with people is that the person who's going to represent me on the board, if it's not me, and of course I can't be on that many boards, is I get to know. I don't need to know them originally, you know, initially, but I must get to know that person because they're the person who's going to provide the information flow. It's going to provide the the potentially the governance of if it's a very early stage of sorry company with with young entrepreneurs who haven't done it before it'll provide um, mentoring and, and and coaching if necessary to the founders etc so that person is key and I will walk away from an investment deal if I haven't got to know or I don't trust that uh, investor non-exec director which of course is a structure that we have in the UK which is somewhat different in other countries and then finally this customer lifetime value customer acquisition cost this is really critical any business and this isn't management speak but any business out there that is making a profit is acquiring customers for less than the value you you get from them so a simple example is you buy in a customer for say 10 pounds because it's an app or something like that you need to get at least 10 pounds back from them because you know it's cost you 10 pounds to find them and hopefully sometime some multiple of that because you've got your overheads to pay for etc etc so you know three or four times um cost of acquisition being lifetime value they've they've got to understand this at the very beginning of course it's you know the customer cost of customer acquisition could be huge it could be 20 times the lifetime value because you've got the early adoption you've got to get there you've got to teach them you know educate the market etc so that that that's the first category is that the level of detail you wanted to go in per category? Is that too much? Yeah, that, that's fine. Um, I like it. If, I mean, if you have insights and you know more information, you can feel free to go even deeper. Uh, I, you know, I've wrote um, while I was reading and doing my research. I really liked when you said that uh, profit is sanity, revenue is vanity. So uh, I guess you touched on that as a bit. <laughs> uh, Yes, and cash flow is the most important anyway. You can have no profit um, 
not no revenue, but no profit. And, and if you haven't got any cash flow, then you, you will fail. In the end, you've got to pay the bills. You've got to pay the salaries at the end of the month. Um, so I, I've been through some really difficult situations where I've just managed to keep going despite not being profitable and despite having no revenue, just by be keeping the cash flow going. Yeah. Um, so ch- shall we move on to the next category? Yeah, or sure. Do you want um, to do that? It was yeah. uh, the product. Yeah, so the product is, so for uh, me and for me, most other angels, it's technology um, products that we're investing in, not service businesses. Um, and that's because they scale with some sort of tech, you know, production, if it's hardware or perhaps software using a, a cloud service such as AWS or Azure. Um, and and uh, But that doesn't mean there isn't good money to be made and good growth to be made in service businesses. In fact, my best exit so far is a tech business that put a service wrapper around the tech to prove it worked and then grew as a service business and exited as a service business. So I invested in tech business and made a good return from a service business. But generally, it has to be tech, where the tech can be really deep tech. And when we talk about university spin-outs later, we'll see... You know, this is technology that hasn't even got a market when I invest in it. So it needs to be the evidence of a large and growing market, but not as an angel. You don't need a huge market. You're not looking for the billion or the hundred billion or the trillion dollar market, even a relatively small market, because angels are just there on the beginning of the journey generally. You, you know, and then there's liquidity, get out and then reinvest. A level of defensibility, very, very rare that a patent has been granted. It might might be slightly different if it's within a university spin-out, but generally it doesn't have to be a patent, but it must be a level of know-how or something where the barrier to entry for a competitor, and they're sure to be competitors, you know, whatever one thinks, it's very, very rare you can find a market without a competitor or the competitors will come in later. Uh, in a space that I understand, that's just generally to, uh, because I like to do my own technical due diligence, and I can obviously do that better if, it, if I understand the market. Although I will, there are things that are outside my uh, comfort zone in terms of what I know, like there's a drug discovery platform that's doing extremely well, but I just back the people. B2B, the reason for B2B rather than B2C or D2C is that I really understand the value, uh, the cost of acquiring business customers from my own experience over the years. And I don't understand the, the cost of acquiring consumers, where you and I, of course, Stefan, are both consumers. Yeah. Um, so I'm just much more comfortable in the B2B space. Um, deep product technology. So um, I, I've sort of covered that before. It needs to be something with a level of defensibility. And then there's a comment there about cryptos or ICOs. Um, except, well, ICOs, I should take that off there because ICOs seem to have died. And maybe SPACs have replaced ICOs. I don't know. We'll discuss that later. Perhaps. <laughs> I haven't yet invested in anything to do with blockchain. I do believe in blockchain. Um, there's a lot of hype about it. Uh, you know, it, it is in the end, it's just a very good database. Uh, exactly. But I haven't yet found a, a, a point, a value, a value, a value chain where blockchain is really important. And I certainly haven't dabbled or done anything in crypto. That's for the that's for the people who bet on old horses and dogs, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, um, around crypto, um, we do have some examples from Romania that you know have been. Building their platforms and products on crypto, oh, on crypto or blockchain. Sorry, um, in the crypto space. That's what I wanted to say, actually. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an it's a novel technology, but definitely it's uh, getting traction, and more and more companies, and even at the enterprise stage, uh, are starting to uh, integrate it into their development efforts as well. Um, yeah, and the blockchain has definitely got a, a future. There was an awful lot of hype about it, probably because of the crypto connection. Originally. Yeah, exactly. So um, awesome. Good. Uh, right, we move on to the third category, shall we? Or which is the finances? Yeah. So um, there are some angels I know who need to see a. The initial product market fit in inverted commas even if it's not the final product nor the final market so they need to see some monetary transaction where the uh, invest the portfolio company they're in potentially investing sorry the company they're investing in has already sold something to somebody and being received some cash for it personally i don't need that i i'll happily do it pre-revenue and and uh, pre-grants i mean there's a lot of grants around for the deep tech companies in various parts of the world i hope there are some in romania i suspect there are because it's a great use of government money generally as long as it's, it's targeted as well as possible so i don't need to see 
early income, but some do. Uh, valuation, this is a really sticky point, and this varies dramatically. And the valuations where you are, and the valuations 40 miles south of me, i.e. London, or, or, or 8,000 miles west of me in California, are all so, so different. Um, so I, I'm sort of pleased that I've stopped investing. The reason I stopped investing is on my website. It's because I got to 65, and most of these companies will take 10, 12 years to get to a grating exit you know 100 million plus and that means i'll be 75 76 77 and i just hey will i live that long who knows yeah. i hope so of course um, and be um you know if they're still ongoing and i was still investing say in my 70s i'd be in my i might be in my 80s i don't want to leave too many of my 50 odd investments i got left to my um children to have to sort it out <laughs> but also so that's the first point but the, the second point is that um the valuation, if you take the what's happened over the last few years, and I know things are changing, most exits in the UK are around about the sort of 10 to 25 million valuation exit. It's a partial acqui hire or it may, it may be an EBITDA, you know, profit multiple. And so if you go in at too high valuation to start with, then by the time it's had a bit more capital in there, then you might find that you have a haircut on exit. I mean, I, I'm, I won't tell you which business, but I was on in a business exit a couple of years ago where uh, the the exit was about fifteen million pounds, and um, the last round had about a twenty percent haircut. I.e., the, they had a you know they got only got eighty percent of the money that they put in that last round. I'd been in all the way, so I got a reasonable multiple on the whole lot. Um, so high valuations as yet don't haven't led to either a larger quantity of exits or a higher general exit uh, value. So that's why going in relatively early, of course, the disadvantage of going early, you can only put so much money in before you're diluting the founders too much. So if you're going to invest some money, you don't want to dilute the founders more than 25%, 30% maximum. So if you're putting half a million in, the, the basically the, the, route, the valuation, the pre-money valuation has to be only about a million. And if you're putting one and a half million in, you can't put that in at uh, one million pre-money valuation. Otherwise, you're taking away half the company from them straight away. Yeah, I, I want to um, talk about that. I mean, it's just a thing that um, I've heard. Um, and um, I'm asking you just to kind of maybe debunk the myth if it's a, if it's a myth. Um, it's the fact that I've heard that, you know, the accelerators, the angels or different VCs that invest at seed stage, pre-seed stage, um, and pre-money valuation is that actually it's a strategy to dilute the founders as much as they can. Do you think that there are? I hope not. That's a terrible behavior. Yeah. Crikey! If that if that would came out into the public domain, either public investor domain, they those people would be blacklisted. If that that behavior is appalling. I mean, you've got to leave, assuming you believe in the founders and you believe the founders should be there for the duration to exit, you've got to get, leave them enough motivation because they're going to be sweating blood and, and, and have, you know, in tears o over the period. You've got, you can't just give them cash, a salary. You've got to give them motivation. That motivation is a share of the business. So the more you dilute them at any stage, the less and less of the business they'll have. Um, and to do it, actually to do it and, and express it out loud, which it sounds like they may be doing, that's just, you know, it's a horrendous thing to say. That sounds like they're, they're almost bullying the founders yeah. into uh, being, being reduced. And there are examples where this has happened. And, and commonly, it'll be because the, an awful lot of capital is required. So if you take a life sciences company, a drug discovery company, it's rare that the founders will have more than a low number of percents at the end. But a low number of percent of a billion, if it did get to a billion, is still tens of millions. Yeah. So it's still worth yeah. having. But to have something that's exiting for 25 million and you've pushed them down to 4%, they're only going to get 100K or something. Oh, sorry, a million, not 100K. A million out of it for all those sort of seven, eight years of, of grief. Yeah, yeah. So, that's a, that's terrible. I hope that I, I don't see that happening in the UK. So yeah, well, uh, I've just heard about it, so I don't know if it's happening somewhere in some markets. But I, you know, since you since you talked about exit, exits and pre-money valuation, it just came to my mind, and uh, you know, I decided to ask you. But I want to talk about the exits and failure relationship um, even further. And actually, you know, my question would be: is if you came to discover interesting patterns in companies that 
exited and those that have failed specifically from your portfolio um have you seen some connections and correlations there are there are connections and again i i'm very open about my um investment the investments i've made and why i've you know as i say the uh, criteria but also open about my failures and successes in a way that most you know most vcs will put on their or some angels will put on their website their successes but they won't necessarily put their failures and if you look at my website i've got i've just updated last week because i had three failures in the last couple of weeks <laughs> i've now got nine exited with a return at least of a one x two with uh, 0 to 1x, which I still regard as positive because at least some money came back. And I've got, got 17 with no return at all for the shareholders. And I've also been a little bit cheeky because on my website, I actually put the reason why, which is what you and I want to discuss over the next few minutes. So generally, in um, and I don't know what it's like around the world, but generally uh, in in the UK and I would think in the States and probably in many other countries, the reason for failure, uh, and CB Insights has got some good data on this actually, the reason for failure is because product market fit has not been reached before investors give up. Now let's just Mm -hmm. unpack what I've just said. So uh, product market fit means that you've got a product or a service perhaps and there's a market for it and you can sell them in such a way you can make enough profit to run the business. But you can make enough profit to run the business that doesn't require continually funding from the investors. You know, you you might be able to get bank debt, but remember bank debt is paying back. Uh, You might be able to get grants, but that's usually the earliest stage. You've got to a position where the business is basically break even. So every year or every six months or every whatever it is, you don't have to go back to the investors. So if you haven't got to product market fit and the investors and any new investors are unwilling to invest, what can you do? You just gradually run out of cash. And once you run out of cash, you don't pay the salaries and therefore it goes bust. So the only option at that point when this is likely to happen, when there's no investors around, is either to sell in a hurry and a forced sale is always a poor sale, or you've got to cut costs to at least live on what you're getting out of customers. So generally, the problem has been the product market fit has not been reached. Now, that could be because the product isn't developed in a way that it doesn't work. I mean, there are plenty of examples, particularly coming out of university spin-outs, where they come out as basically a a late-stage science experiment and they never get it working. So the product hasn't even found a market, never mind any fit, and the investors give up funding this ongoing science experiment. It's more likely, Hams, where there is a product and there is a market but they haven't got to the point where it's got to break even. And the investors, having done all kinds of things, you know, the, the team will have, and the current investors will try and protect their investment by trying to find new ones. They'll they'll do all kinds, they may be a big down round to bring new investors in, which of course is very dilutive for the existing investors and the founders, which you may have to re-motivate with options. But if you haven't got, if you can't find those investors when you're still not making any money, that's that's why most of the businesses that I'm involved with have gone bust. There are one or two others. There's one I won't tell you which one it is, and it's not actually in the text on my uh, web page. There's one where the founders gave up. Uh, they went on and decided this was too much, and this went and on and did a different, a different thing. Um, there, uh, but but you know. The, you do occasionally get them where, yeah, they, either they've given up together as a, an entity or sometimes you'll have a founder lo- leave because they've lost interest mm-hmm. and it's difficult to replace them. So so it, it, in the end, it is a people problem unless mm-hmm. there's been this massive bad debt or there's been a huge fire that wasn't insured, which is still a people problems in, in principle because even a bad debt means that the founder should not have given that much credit to the company that, that's gone bust. So they have still made a mistake. So, so you know, in the end, the failure is still a people problem, entrepreneurial team problem. But um, it's it's not, you know, you can't really blame them in the end. I mean, something's got wrong, of course, in the end. But, um, you know, that, that, that's why they'll fail. And the successes are where there's been an exit. But some exits, I must say... Product market fit has still not been found. 
I had one recently, which is on one of my positive exits, which I think I can probably share. Um, it was called Spectral Edge. It, it says on here, Spectral Edge sold for a good multiple to Apple. And then there's a press release. So obviously I know more than that's on the press release because I'm a shareholder. But I can tell you that at that point, when it exited for a good sum of money, which is not on the press release, it hadn't got any any market there was a product but there was no market fit because there were no customers so basically that was um, um, acquihire and practically buying the product the stack right the development exactly yeah. right it was an acquihire Got it, it was a team and ip buy yeah. exactly yeah. right and that is the sort of numbers that we're talking about in the uk these sort of 10 to 30 million maybe creeps up to 50 million maybe it's only 5 million I've got one at the moment that's selling for one pound, one pound, so that's 1.2 euros <laughs> as an acquire. And uh, since, so that's, um, that's interesting that, I mean, and it's not new to me around the product market fit. And there was something that you said around, you know, f uh, investors giving up on uh, funding the team that hasn't reached that milestone. Why does that happen sometimes? What does uh, what what happens over there? Is there a trust lost in the product in the team? Do you from your experience, if you know? Yeah, it's it's usually exactly that that the investors have. Remember, every investor has other opportunities to invest in. So there's not an infinite amount of money, although at the moment, because of the way that the world's going with very low interest rates, etc., there's an awful lot of money in venture, probably too much money in venture. And, you know, the general feeling is there is going. this is a bubble of some form, as there have been a couple in the last 25 years, and, and this will, you know, people will remove from that. But you can't really put it into property, you can't put it into the stock markets necessarily, you can't, certainly can't put it as cash. Um, so it's the investors and any new investors, not just the existing investors, because of course the founders and the, as I said earlier on and the investors at the moment will try to find money it's just that nobody's got the, the faith that the product and the team around the product is going to going to achieve a positive exit you know it's going to carry on growing now it, it, sometimes of course the founders get changed don't they it's, it's commonly the founders of my um, 76 investments uh, I've had 22 founders leave and I've had 10 that have been redeployed in the business so they've been given chief strategy officer or chief technical officer and we've brought another CEO in um, so it, it, it's possible that other people will grow the business as we all know and you know Stefan you know a, an entrepreneurial founder will rarely make the a CEO that can actually really scale the business they, they, they haven't got the right mindset, they get bored, etc., etc. Some will, and there are some great examples of ones that have, but there are plenty that the business is sold and then it's, you know, a bigger company carries on with it or they step aside or step away. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with that. And uh, um, that's the same approach that we take as well in our startup studio is actually it's a, it's a people business first and we look at the ventures that we build um, we build out the organizational structure, the roles and responsibilities, and then start looking for people that are fit for those roles and good within that niche of the business that we build the venture. And so I agree with what you say. And I think the right people have to be in the right roles in terms of having a good organizational structure, in terms of, you know, reaching the the level of integration um, ready for scaling, if it, if it makes sense. Um, I would like to still stay in the portfolio of your companies and maybe this is like a <laughs> it's an interesting question but um what was or maybe still is your favorite company or your favorite investment and you know, feel free feel yeah. free to pick your criteria <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I've been asked this many times over the years. I remember being asked on live BBC radio <laughs> once and I came up with something and I, 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 I sort of knew what the audience would be because it was a local radio and so there would have been a few thousand people listening and they were eating breakfast. It was BBC radio. And I came up with something which I suddenly realised during the conversation was completely wrong. It was to do with KYC, which know your clients, and AML, which is anti-money laundering. So I thought, oh my God, oh, the audience won't, won't understand this. So I then 
then pivoted completely to talk about another one, which I really like, which is a, a robot that picks strawberries. And then I realized that we decided as a board we wouldn't publicize this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a back off from there as well. So, yeah, the criteria vary, don't they? So it, if I'm on the board, it's the people I work with. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that they can be favorites. I've, I've formed, even though there's a generational difference, I've formed some really firm friends with people I've worked with. You know, these will be lifelong lifelong friends. So it could be the, the people, well, it's generally the people I'm close to it. If I'm not close to it, then other things. It's the societal or society impact that makes a difference. You know, it's the um, the journey and enjoying watching their journey from afar in terms of the ups and downs and what I've learned from it and obviously what I've contributed <laughs> to the books and everything. Or it could be, I've never been a financially motivated investor. I've always said I'd like to get all my investment back plus a dollar, a pound or a euro, uh, Just, but I would like to enjoy what I do. Yeah. And that has happened. And because of a combination of luck and all the other things I've built up, I've, as is on my website, I've, I've got more than double my money back already and I've still got 50 or so to, to go. So I should make about a 4x on my, my total investment. So... You know, multiple, the biggest multiple is 107 times my money. That actually ticks several of the boxes. So that was a great investment. They're great people. It was a great journey that I learned from. So in principle, I suppose, although it has the big financial return, I should use that. Hasn't got particularly strong social return, though. It, it's, a, it's a big employer, but um, unemployment's not that low in the UK. So I, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm waffling around this. <laughs> that's so, that, that's okay, that's totally fine. I mean, this is a, a free-flowing conversation and, you know, I'm, I like when, when people are um, comfortable and in their zone to talk about um, what they've done and uh, what they're doing. Um, and there was one thing that caught my uh, attention and that was, you know, you said the relationship between the founders uh, from the companies you invest in. And I just want to unpack that question really quickly. Um, what defines or makes a good relationship for you? What are the things that build a good relationship for you in this specific um, context? Yeah, well it's, it's, well, it's trust anyway. What we're doing when we invest as early stage investors in trusting other human beings to take our money and and do something with it in a prudent way. So you're building that trust and that trust needs maintaining. It needs maintaining because one wants to continue helping them, reinvesting, etc. So actually investment is to do with trust between the investors and the investees at the early stage. Um, but there's more to it than that because if I'm going to be particularly on the board or something, there must be a level of chemistry there. So that, And for me, that means having... Uh, people who are driven, driven but not overdriven, who are passionate, who are interesting and interested, um, that I can learn from and that will learn. So it's one of my main criteria for doing the due diligence before investing is to make sure they will listen to, not me necessarily, it's, it's good if they do, but li- so they'll listen to the market and they'll listen to their staff and they'll listen to the regulators and all the other things they'll need to do because they'll probably inevitably have to pivot at some point. So it's their ability to listen. So, um, so yeah, so in terms of interaction with the people, if I'm on the board, it's less important if I'm a more distant shareholder because I won't have nearly so much contact there. There I've got the chemistry if it's friendship but certainly the trust for the investor director so that's important that's why they're so important they're the person on the board and if the chemistry works well i say then you know what can for i formed what business friends that have become personal friends uh, thank you thank you for that so i didn't knew if that's going to be a bit let's say maybe personal or private side but you know i took the risk to to ask you so that was I'm fine saying it. Whether people understand it is a different matter. Um, coming back to our uh, thread of conversation around investments and so on, I know that you know, out of all of your investments you've done, 17 are in university spinouts, and this is something that we briefly touched on our panel at Wolf Summit. Could you share with me, you know, some of the differences between university spinouts and non-university spinouts, if I can say it, or like general startups which emerge from society. 
originally, if you go back six, seven, eight years, I didn't really do many university spin-outs because they're quite, they were quite tough. And they were tough for the reasons we'll come on to in a moment, which is to do with the people. So they don't, academics don't necessarily make good entrepreneurs. The reason I've done so many, and I had a good exit actually, there was an exit from Cambridge CMOS Sensors, which went to AMS, Austrian Microsystems, which is quoted on the Viennese Stock Exchange. Uh, and I was on the board of that one as well, so I learned a lot from that journey. But I've done a lot more university spin-outs. And I, I, I don't know if what you'll say in the introduction about me or have said, but I live in Cambridge and I went to Cambridge University. And so Cambridge is a hotbed, of course, of tech and tech. the tech transfer is particularly good here in Cambridge. And we talked about that at Wolves. Um, and because valuations have gone up so much in generally, particularly in London, and university spin-outs aren't at such a high valuation, partly driven by Cambridge University being sensible about it, then I've invested in more and more university spin-outs. Um, so, so that's why the number 17 and not probably 8 or 9 or 10, which it would have been otherwise, because of valuations. The, the, the issues with the positive benefit of university spin-out is that the tech is generally very deep. You know, it's it's groundbreaking, particularly as I'm lucky enough to live in Cambridge. Though they haven't always been out of Cambridge University. Um, the defensibility has been improved to some extent because the, the patents have been applied for already. They won't have been granted, but that's on the route there. So you've got a you've got a piece of tech, and you've got some gr potentially great defensibility. What's not so good is the people that packed around this. You've got, you know, many, the professor, there's usually a professor hanging around there somewhere, and there's some great professors around Cambridge, of course, as, as academics, but they don't necessarily, A, make good entrepreneurs, nor want to, because they really want to hang on to their university roles, they want to hang on to their potential university pensions, they want to continue publishing papers, and they want to, to lecture, and they want to be in the university. So therefore, you need other people to come in to be the commercial um, lead on this. And there are a pool of these around here, and there are some that will come out of the, as I said, uh, in Wolves, that come out of the Management Institute here, called the Judge in Cambridge, etc., etc. So the team isn't nearly as good generally, or it isn't as good, that's too strong to say nearly as good, isn't as good as it would be in a commercial uh, entity. But the tech and the defensibility is. But the big downside, of course, is that you look at something and they say that it's going to be used for something and you just don't know because the market doesn't even exist at that point. <laughs> You've just got to assume that, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's an idea looking for a market or it's a... In a mousetrap before the mouse was ever bred or formed or something. You know, it's, 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 it's really, uh, interesting. And they do, but they give them enough time and money. And, you know, there's a lot of capital around at the moment. I've got one at the moment. I don't think I can tell you who it is, but what it came out initially out of the university was for something. And within a year and a half, it's pivoted into something really big. And although they're not a customer, um, the, work what's been said by Zuckerberg in the last few days about Meta and where he sees Facebook going plays very nicely to where this company has is going to or says it's going to at the moment so major pivot but the tech is the same tech you've you've mentioned um, Cambridge University does the, the university um, take the accountability or the responsibility to also uh, create those channels or that pipeline or context where they um let's say develop those commercial people that can on board or do they take it take them out from outside of the university a good question so those people generally some of them are academic there you get some you know i'm at the university here and i'm obviously very commercial now i never made a very good academic but you know i learned a lot of commercial stuff uh, so some you will find academics who are commercially good and and some of the business that i've invested in have got people who've come out at sort of postdoc or principal investigator level pi level who've come out um, there are some who are serial entrepreneurs who've probably be told they've already been on one journey and then when that journey finishes either because it's outgrown them or the business has been sold or possibly it's failed they'll come back and do another one so they'll do three or four years stints of various sorts 
you know, some of these people in their 50s or even 60s at this point. There are people who hang around from Cambridge anyway, because we've got 47,000 small companies in the Cambridge community that come out of those that could, could provide the commercial. There are, as I say, the, um, the, uh, the management school does, you know, being entrepreneur is, 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 is a career choice nowadays, which it wasn't 10 or 11 years ago. Um, and so they'll, they'll actually make a career choice to, and you don't need to have done an MBA, but you make a career choice at coming out of academia. And, and, and whether it's nurture or nature, I don't know. You might have your own views on that, whether you're, you're a good commercial uh, person. But you do need to sell equity. You do need to have a level of charisma and capability. Uh, if you get somebody who's very, very deep tech, they will struggle to stand up on stage and then uh, sell the vision in such a way they can, can uh, attract equity. Yeah, uh, well, it is a, a topic that is of interest for us. Uh, specifically, we are positioning our studio around the technology transfer, a market which is still highly underdeveloped in Eastern Europe, specifically in Romania. Um, and well, looking forward to see the market form uh, in the future. Um, and um, hopefully uh, we're going to have uh, some good startups come out of that. <laughs> My next question would would be around management and performance. And while I was reading your your website, um, I came to 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 this text. And you, you know, you say you founded or co-founded fourteen businesses in technology and property over the last forty years. And I made a, a calculation, which I came to an average of two point eight years per business. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was yeah. I looked at that and I thought, no, actually, you got that slightly wrong, Stefan, because these are in parallel. <laughs> They're not all in series. I'm not a, I'm not a serial failure of businesses. <laughs> I know, I know, but and you know that, that yeah. was you know just uh, just um, just maybe a, a you know a, a, like a very funny entry. But the question is, how do you become better at business? You know, to be specific, you know, what are your top management habits in order to be able to you know to be more performant to be have to have a better management around it because 14 businesses either in sequence either in parallel it's quite a big number and it's a great undertaking and i'm definitely sure that you have different roles in and or had different roles in it but still my question stands Yes. Okay. Yeah. None of them. Not all of them grew very big. The biggest was only about thirty people. So you know, these aren't big businesses. So, um, and uh, some of them were really small, like one or two people or three people or something like that. But I mean, the, the rules or the the, um, the your question is really irrelevant. How how big they are? What you know, a good manager is all the things that you you probably know, but we mostly express them in things like. Um, they must have a good ability to manage, but not just downwards, uh, upwards as well. Where upwards is to, if you own the business outright and you have all the shares and you're the sole founder, even if you've got people below you, there really is nobody upwards in terms of the uh, management because you own all the shares. However, there's still management of customers. Mm-hmm. So you've still got something that in order to survive and even, you know, without any share, external shareholders, you've still got customers and then they still manage, need managing, of course. Uh, culture. So creating a culture, assuming you've got employees and you know no business is going to scale without employees, then create understanding how to create a culture, creating the culture, adapting that culture and maintaining that culture is really, really important and another obviously back to what i said a few minutes ago the ability to listen so a good manager will listen now part of this could be coupled to the management down and upwards but it's also listening to all the other things round about somebody who is very focused but is listening at the same time is actually a slightly unusual breed um but but, but um and then the other thing that I think I, I see happen quite a lot with startups and I did find with myself, there's actually something, uh, there's a, somewhere if you Google it, you'll find a letter to my 29-year-old self. Uh, it's on the Frog Capital, Frog's a small, smallish VC here in, in London, um, which gives you, a, gives you a number of things, which are all anecdotal based, actually. And you may want to put in the show notes this, or we can, I can give you the link. Um, and one of the things I got completely, utterly wrong was not having enough financial knowledge. So I relied at one point, a long time ago, on uh, a bookkeeper to provide the accounts for the who didn't know enough and stuff that should have been on the P&L ended up on the balance sheet. 
and we ended up in this massive great financial hole where somebody like, uh, if you take inflation into account, probably £300,000 would be put in the wrong place. So we, we thought we were making profits, but we weren't. So, because she'd put it on the balance sheet, it should have gone into the P&L as losses. And that was a disaster. So I, you know, having enough knowledge of what finances means for a senior manager is critically important. And of course, I wasn't taught that. I did engineering and computer science. You know, there was, I just didn't have the background. Whereas nowadays, anybody doing a STEM type degree, maybe not pure maths or something, has got some sort of business knowledge there as well. When do you think is the proper time to bring in the accountant in-house and by when should the accountancy and finance be part be outsourced yeah this is a journey of a company that's having external investments is that all you mean for any journey um Um, it could be any journey but you know the context is outside uh, investments yes yes (laughs) i've seen this i saw this first time recently when i've been on the board where in fact still the cto still does the books um uh, and she is it's it's a ridiculous waste of her time but it it, it will it's, it will change soon because we've just raised quite a lot of money um so initially it's actually i think it helps if one of the founders who's numerate and hopefully they're all numerate does actually do the books in the short term because they get to understand what a nominal ledger is they understand what a creditor is and a debtor is they understand what a balance sheet is compared with a P&L account compared with a cash flow statement. So that when, if they've got the basics there, because you wouldn't have got it, you know, in most works walks of life, you don't actually learn that apart from specific accounting skills. So you've got that and then it's handed over as soon as possible, really, once they've done that, because they've got better things to do with their time. The, the value of buying a book you'd be compared with being a CEO is, is quite a big difference you know, generally. So uh, then outsource. So generally, it would be best to outsource for a while and then bring in again when there's enough money around to do that. And this particularly applies to FDs and, you know, putting out to a part-time FD or CFO and then bring it back in again. So in the end, it doesn't, you know, it depends on the size of the company, but um, I would think once you get to 30 people, you've probably got a full-time accounts person internally and a two-day-a-week or maybe one to two-day-a-week CFO, FD. And and then when you get to 60, you've got a financial controller, you've probably got a couple of people in internally in the accounts department, you've got a full-time FD. It all varies. There's no set way of doing this at all. But what's really important, though, is for the founders to have a good understanding of the numbers. Because they'll have to, you know, although the board meetings are presented by the FD, if there is one, before that, they'll be presented, of course, by the by one of the founders. And like I did, you can really make a huge mess of it if you don't understand those. <laughs> um, Peter, you described, I think, uh, well, not in a 100%, um, let's say, uh, picture but you describe what's happening actually maybe with us because I went through that um, period and I'm still going I'm never going to finish but um, understanding finance which is a big world and accounting of course but um, I, I went through that uh, period of um, learning to read it um, I would I would say and you know I'm in, just in the process of preparing to hand it over outside for a while <laughs> And then bring it back when it's going to be the time. I don't know when it's going to be time. Like you said, there's no, um, there's no like a proper template or a checklist that you have when you have to do this. So it was interesting because this was more of a personal question, I think. <laughs> so yeah, thank you okay. for that. Um, sure. You authored a book, which is uh, about angel investment and on angel investing. Uh, which is called uh, The Invested Investor. Two books, actually. Two books. The Invested Investor and Founder to Founder. Okay. Very different books. Though. Okay, okay. So this is going to be, I'm going to split the question then in two. Um, so who is the, who are the books for and what can they, you know, people find inside of them? So The Invested Investor was written because I found I was spending time mentoring, of course, one-to-one giving classes you know whether it's in the university or in accelerators and all all over europe all over the world really would it be one to 20 or 30 uh i was uh, but I, I i wanted to scale myself basically so i wanted to do it in a way that was done so the audience 
could be very much bigger. So this was done by a combination of the books, and we'll describe the two books in a moment, and a number of podcasts. So we've done about 75 podcasts, which in fact have just gone onto a new platform a few months ago called the New Books Network, which you won't have heard of, an American uh, network, which is nothing direct to do with books, but has brought it out to the audience has increased dramatically since then. Um, so the first book was aimed at newbie angels, angels who wanted to do just starting and want to become angels. And <laughs> one of my podcast, I was speaking to him yesterday, actually, one of my podcastees, who's a wonderful guy, who set up something which is called Booking.com, which you've probably heard of. Uh, in fact, it was called sort of Active Hotels, and then it merged with Booking BV or something, and it became Booking.com. Uh, he, he said <laughs> the problem with angels is that they know it all from day one. You know, they're arrogant. <laughs> it's not true, of course, because I, well, I knew I didn't know it all, but there are others that do. So actually, the number of people who've read the book, which is a, it's a journey, it's basically a journey from how, to, for an angel, how to find, well, working out that you should be an angel, how to find the investments, how to help the investments, how how boards work, how rounds get closed, how deals are led, etc. And then how to to scale, the scaling bit's not very much, that's more in the second book. And then how to cope with failure and how to cope with success. So that's what the book's about. But about, of all the books we've sold, uh, only about a quarter have gone to angels. Three quarters have gone to entrepreneurs who want to get under the skin mm-hmm. of how an angel investor works, what they're looking at, what they want to see, how to work with them, the positives and negatives, because we aren't always you know, ain't angelic. There are times when we can appear to be somewhat stricter than that, etc., etc. And but it's also interesting for the entrepreneur to read about solvent and insolvent failure. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference. Solvent failure means that the only the the investors lose money and nobody else. The government loses no money. The trade creditors lose no money. Everything an insolvent failure where there's losses are made. The staff have lost money, etc., etc. Um, so that's the first book. The second book was done quite differently. It was done as collecting about 100 people that I knew or knew of and getting their anecdotes together based on a number of different categories about hiring and firing and scaling and marketing and customer acquisition cost and giving their views and then that being analysed by by me or others. That's great. So that was a really... A- Nice surprise for me, um, and I'm gonna definitely link those two in the, in in the podcast episode bio. Um, and you know, like we had um, our conversation, short conversation before you know recording the podcast. Um, it is, in fact, a good. I mean, I know this would actually be a question. Do you think it's good for founders to read and get under the skin of the of angels or how investors think, um, or should they? focus on their business skills and learning business or is it well yeah that's a that's a good question i mean the problem with well let's just describe the the investment process is pitch produced by entrepreneurs put it out to people pitch to angels or investors of some form go through the process of you know whatever it takes the due diligence on both sides etc the point of close the, everybody wants that to be as short as possible because they want the entrepreneurs to be getting on and building the business. But at the same time, both parties, and it's not just us choosing the entrepreneurs, it's the entrepreneurs choosing us to make sure we're going to be good investors, we're going to behave ourselves, etc. We can follow on. That does take some time. It cannot be done just by writing a check, unless you're on a crowdfunding site or something like that, or, or your Dragon's Den or Shark Tank or whatever <laughs> these crazy programs are called. <laughs> so, um, the, 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 uh, so the so you, you really want the entrepreneurs to be concentrating on uh, the business, but at the same time, it does take, it, you know, it, it's cost of acquisition of capital, whether it is, it's sort of similar in some ways, the cost of acquisition of customer. You, the, the money's coming in, I mean, it's good money because you don't have to give it back. <laughs> There's pressure in you to do something with it, but it's not. not. And so doing that is, is, does require time, uh, as does building the business. So if you do need to raise capital, you do need to class that as one of the skills you need to build in the same way as you would do when you're building up the ability to hire and fire and, and manage, etc. So take it as a, a parallel 
the learning process. Now, in terms of timing, it's somewhat different because, because for a very small company with a couple of founders, you'd need to raise the capital really before you can scale if, that, if that's what you need to do. So you need to learn how to raise the capital before you need to learn how to fire somebody or something like that. I like I like your answer, and um, um, I started doing it as well on my side. Um, you know, trying to understand how investors think more and more, and all types of investors, from angels to um, venture capital investors, and even even in my last weeks, even private equity and so on. But um, I think it's really important, even you know what you said from both sides, that founders take the time to understand who is coming on board who are they going to try to not try who are they going to have by their side and build a business with because like a good friend of mine said uh, like when you get a new person on the shareholder on the cap table it's like a marriage so uh it's it's so it's really important so that's that is why you have to have the patience to get to know the person and understand the person you're going to start working with for at least five years? Well, I, I take it further than that. I say that it's more difficult to, to get rid of a shareholder uh, than it is to get divorced. And that obviously depends on the culture of the countries, et cetera, et cetera. But actually getting divorced, and I have, had, I have been divorced, so I can talk with experience, is easier than getting rid of a, a, a shareholder, whether they're a, you know, an errant shareholder. You wouldn't want to get rid of a good shareholder. So that's, that's getting rid of the shareholder. And of course, for the, uh, the shareholder themselves, you can't get rid of an entrepreneur, but you don't really need to do that. I've got some in my portfolio, which I really don't communicate with at all. And they just sit there and I'm sort of okay with that. But it's the other way around where you've got a difficult shareholder that how can you get rid of them? You can't. It is more difficult than getting divorced. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I've been, I've been in that situation. I, we had a, I had a small exit, a very small exit, actually. It was an, uh, an event agency, and uh, one, we were three, and one of the shareholders, um, well, which is, let's say, uh, we just had a really difficult time in <laughs> coming to an understanding of how should we split parts. Uh, but eventually, it, it, uh, we negotiated well, and it... Uh, it went down okay, but it took a lot of time. It took almost one year to get to the bottom of it. So that can take really time. Um, Peter, um, I just came to my, you know, my final question. And uh, it's more on the personal side. And for anybody listening to better understand my question, please visit Peter's website, which I'm going to link anyway in the, in the bio. Um, Peter, where do you take your energy and drive to push your limits and go beyond and do so many things because in my research like i said you have so many um let's say milestones so many things that you've been part of and still being part of where do you take your energy from yeah and again I, this is something that i've thought about a lot and i have this wonderful life coach katie who's helped me with some of the process of trying to work that out so this is a i say life coach who's a business life coach it wasn't she, she's not a counselor or a psychotherapist although i have had a bit of psychotherapy over the years i think partly it's sort of a combination of nature and nurture so uh, my father was a small businessman he was a dental surgeon uh, but, you know, it wasn't the same. We only had one customer, which was the National Health Service in the UK. We had lots of clients. Uh, so there was some of, some of that to start with. I think, the, the it, I don't know if this is genetic or not, but it's an intense, almost um, uh, pathological desire to learn. So to learn, I, I just, I live to learn really, but not just to learn from others, not just to draw from other people, but to give as well, hence helping you with this podcast and the books and everything else. So I just, I, I, for some reason, which I can't work out, I need to fill each day, not in a way that's detrimental to my personal relationships, I hope, with something where I'm giving and taking at the same time. So that has meant, and I'm also willing to take a lot of risks, you know, willing to take, which entrepreneurs have to take risks, uh, willing to take risks, uh, not not necessarily financial risks, so I have taken huge financial risks, is taking opportunity risks. We're only on this planet for a while, aren't we? Unless you believe in reincarnation and you might have come back as an angel investor. <laughs> um, so you do, you do, you know, you, you, we are a lucky position. Not everybody. There's loads of people out there 
billions of people out there that don't have choices. But people like me do have choices. And therefore, we have a choice of what to do with our time, the, the opportunity cost of life. And I have chosen to do what I do. It's not as if I'm trying to get somewhere. I'm not trying to get a knighthood or become super rich or anything like that. It's just because I really enjoy learning. And I particularly enjoy spending time with people of your sort of age or younger, you know, the millennials. I, I, I just absorb so much from them. You know, I'm 66 years old. I'm a, I did a half marathon two weeks ago, you know. Uh, not like Hansi Hansman, who seems to do a half marathon every day, if you know him. He's he's a very famous agent investor in Austria, uh, who I know. <laughs> so I don't know, it just feels like I just want to film my life to the full. Um, and, uh, it, and you know, obviously when you bring the kids up, it's a bit slower now, and the kids are much older, my kids. Uh, in fact, uh, one of them lives with me, who's 37, believe it or not, long story behind that. He won't mind me saying this. It's great, really wonderful. He's He's been a digital nomad for 20 years, and he's just living at home for a bit. And the other one is in the office just in, down this corridor here, who is a VC. He was my, the co-founder of Invest Investor, and he's joined a VC, which I'm involved with. So... Um, I have more time is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I've got more time to do things. Though I am, as again, it's on my website, I'm winding down over the next year, traveling for a couple of years. And then once I get to about 70, working out what I want to do next. I suspect it will still be doing these sort of uh, podcasts if, I, if people will have me when my hair is completely white. <laughs> that's that's a, such an amazing answer, Peter, because um, you just you know gave me an insight around about myself, uh, because I'm a I'm a curious person as well, and when curious, I mean I can relate or connect curiosity to liking to learn or live to learn, right? And um, I can find myself in what you are saying because that's how I I see myself as well in terms of because I like to learn and I'm curious about things about how they work about um, how it worked work, and then I take that opportunity to learn. Um, I just realized that. Um, and I'm think I'm asking myself in the same time, and maybe I'm going to ponder about that question. Like, if there's any correlation between um, liking to learn or wanting to learn, curiosity, and because you have this, let's say, value or trait, um, you have more time. Mm. Yes, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe I waste a waste. But what, what's wasting time anyway? It's very unfair to. To say that because somebody's I, I don't relax and I don't listen to music and you know there's some things I've got friends who say just calm down slow down <laughs> but I, I just get my nutrition my nourishment out of life by this sort of thing which for some people regard as work and intense and difficult but I regard as just part of what keeps me keeps me going and uh, this is a, a, one final thing which I you know it was super interesting to find out um, I've done psychotherapy as well and I do uh, coaching and I know that I need help. And what I came to, um, let's say, um, a sign or see is that actually the entire entrepreneurship game or, or entrepreneurship journey is actually a big psychotherapy journey. <laughs> <laughs> um, you get to uncover so many skeletons and so many limitations and so many fears that you have to go into them, unpack them, heal them, and then go over them and try again. So I don't know if this happened to you, but it's definitely helping to help, helping to me. Um, the fact that, you know, I just come to see every week maybe or, or, or so to some kind of limitation or some kind of fear. And then I have to step back, analyze, um, make a decision, go forward. So, um, yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, self-analysis self is really, really important and being self-aware. I mean, I didn't put that down there. I mean, intellectual intelligence is pretty important, in my view, for scaling a company properly, but emotional intelligence is even more important. And that's difficult. And that's something that I took, and probably I was probably older than you before I really felt that I was beginning to understand myself uh, and, and gaining emotional intelligence. The psychotherapy, and it, it should be said that this, there's a lot of, unsurprisingly, there's a lot of mental health issues in in many areas of society, of course, a lot more because of COVID, but also in, in these highly driven entrepreneurs uh, where the stresses are very, very high and, and supporting those and their families and whatever through that is, is, is difficult but important. Yeah, well, we just had a conversation with Mike 
actually it was two weeks back and uh, he said that founders are two times likely to have more or bigger mental health challenges than the let's say the benchmark or general society because of exactly what you're saying the entrepreneurial journey is much more um challenging and um, let's say yeah challenging i think it's good it's a good word yeah no 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 yeah exactly I and mean, we should be more aware of that than we probably are yeah as, as an ecosystem exactly startup ecosystem peter this was absolutely amazing and i loved the conversation um thank you very much for joining the podcast and well hopefully maybe see you soon somewhere face to face i didn't manage to come to the wolf summit but uh, hopefully if not we can have another conversation maybe somewhere in the future yeah no i i obviously one shouldn't fly nowadays but yeah. i do creep onto aircraft occasionally and i've not been to romania so i'd love to come out and and help you and talk face to face with you and your your accelerator or, or group that would be great i know you like hiking and the mountains so Yes. There's are there are plenty of nice spots to hike over here. Excellent. Thank you very much Stefan. That was really good. Really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you Peter for joining. Thanks for listening. If you liked this conversation, this is a short reminder to click the follow or subscribe button and get notified immediately when we publish a new episode. Until next time.